This is the account of the family of Isaac, son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian, from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Armenian. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went and asked the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? She asked. The Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations from the very beginning. The two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first was very red at birth and covered in thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. The other twin was born with his hands grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the, uh, when the twins were born. I'll continue reading from Genesis 25. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starving. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, therefore, thereby selling all of his rights as their firstborn son to his brother, Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn son. This is the word of the Lord. Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob. Their names just flow together the way twins' names always just flow together. Jacob and Esau, Esau and Jacob. Joined together from the very womb, you know how it is with twins. I bet when one sprained their ankle, ankle the other felt it. And I bet when one fell in a cold stream, the other shivered, though he was miles away. Jacob and Esau are all the twins we've ever known. And in a way of reading this text, they are all the people we have ever known. I'll be honest, there's not much about this story that surprises me very much if you read it well. This story sounds like something you would read in the Tuesday edition of the Democrat Gazette or a story we would tell around the Thanksgiving table. 
Isaac and Rebekah were having trouble having children, which is a theme in Genesis, if you read the whole book. I think this is a reminder to us that life is a gift to us, not something we create or conjure up, even as people of promise. Finally, Rebecca did indeed become pregnant, though her bowels began twisting and turning within her, and one day she cried out to God saying, Why? I'm sure she had a few words for Isaac that day as well. God said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And then God gave her Tom's, I think, and sent her home. Well, the time came for the children to be born. And out came Esau first. He was red. The text says Adam. It's similar to the word Edom. And he's covered with hair. And of course, as the oldest son, he was supposed to be the leader of the family and the primary recipient of the birthright and blessing. If the story went the way it was supposed to go, Esau was to be the responsible one. Turns out, he was a man's man. A hunter who lived most of his life out in the wild. And one day, when he was much older, he came in from the fields famished. And Jacob, his younger brother, who was more of an inside kind of guy, had made a red stew. And Esau began to drool and said, Give me some of that stuff. I'm starving. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but in my mind when I imagine this text, I see Esau coming in the kitchen saying, Me hungry. Give me something to eat. And Jacob, in his cunning way, says, Okay, give me the blessing of the birthright and I'll give you some soup while he slurps it from the big spoon coming out of the pot. And Esau, thinking out of his hunger, says, deal. And he exchanged his birthright and all that entails for some red pottage. No room for delayed gratification here, just immediate satisfaction. But I don't think we should make fun of Esau. I'm not going to make fun of Esau. It's like when you're on a diet and you've done pretty well, but someone on the hospitality committee who believes themselves to be a saint, but they're really not, puts a piece of pecan pie right in front of you with a scoop of ice cream, and the ice cream is just beginning to melt, and it's running down the grooves of the pecans and dancing with the ooey-gooey stuff in the middle. And you could either lose a few pounds in a few weeks, or you could eat that pie. Or you're trying to save money for college and the new iPhone comes out. And have you seen all of the apps on the new iPhone? We can make fun of Esau's me hungry all we want. But saying no to present satisfaction because of a weightier yes in the future is difficult for all of us if we're honest with ourselves. To sometimes the yeses of our appetites in the moment overwhelm the yeses of our souls in the future and we just say, me hungry. Esau doesn't surprise me one bit. Most of the time I am Esau. And then there's Jacob, the younger of the twins, who when the boys were born came out grabbing Esau's heel as if trying to pull Esau back in and himself forward. The, the very name Jacob in Hebrew means something like heel grabber, 
which was a colloquial way of saying deceiver or supplanter, someone who's trying to get ahead. From the womb, Jacob was striving for the older brother status. From the womb, he was trying to pull Esau back and himself forward. From the womb, he was trying to get a leg up. And truth be told, in a way, he never ever did let go of Esau's heel. And so when Esau came in from the fields that day, starving to death, Jacob saw his chance. He offered his chicken soup for the soul, and Esau all but sold his soul to have it. And from that point on, Jacob had the birthright to this, gave it away to this scheming trickster, Jacob. Have you ever been around someone who, when they saw someone in need, didn't see a chance for help, but an opportunity to exploit? Someone who, when they saw someone hungry, saw not a chance to feed, but a chance to raise the prices on the stew? There are folks all over the world who, when they see a young child in need, see an opportunity for personal gain, not a chance for compassion. Who, when they see asylum seekers running for their lives, literally find in their hearts not empathic hospitality, but exploitative opportunity. Jacob here doesn't meet his brother's need. He meets his own wants. And I don't find that strange either. We can see that just about everywhere we look today. And what seems all the more common about this story is that it's not just a tale about two people, remember? This is a tale about two peoples. Do you remember what God said? God said to Rebecca, two nations are within you. This isn't just individual drama. This is, isn't just interpersonal drama. This is intertribal conflict here, international animosity. This isn't just how brothers behave. This is how nations behave. This is how tribes behave. This is how communities of people behave. How nations like Esau can say, me hungry, in a consumerist kind of way, neglecting what is in their long-term good. How nations can sacrifice what makes for the long-term well-being of their children on the altars of immediate satisfaction. Or how a politician can exchange the birthright of what's good for the soul of a country, for the pottage of the dark populism of any given moment. Or how an entire nation or groups of nations can turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what is good for the planet long term because they can only see or hear of short-term profit margins. This is a slow way of committing suicide. But when you're hungry... When, it's, when the sentiment, the orienting sentiment is me hungry, it's all that matters. If you can't see past your own consumption, it's all that matters. What is this if not the tribe of Esau writ large? Sometimes groups of people just say, me hungry, and that's all that matters. Jacob has a people too. It's not just Esau. Jacob has a people too who are constantly looking for heels to grab who are constantly looking for power and control, trying to pull others back and themselves forward. It's sort of an embryonic impulse that people groups have, is it not? To pull others back and ourselves forward. When a person in a room says, me first, we would say that's selfish and a vice. But when a group of people say, us first, somehow that becomes a virtue to the other nations in the room. How is that the case? 
These nations, these people groups believe in a power that is found in might and muscle and wealth and greatness rather than a power that is found in compassion and hospitality and generosity and goodness. These folks only believe in one kind of power. And they reach for that power, not love, because that power is easier and it's less sacrificial and it takes less time than genuine love from God. And if these nations have to trickster their way or connive their way or lie their way or exploit their way, they will do it, so be it. Jacob has a people too. I'm not one bit surprised by Jacob. I'm not one bit surprised by Esau in this story. I've seen them in people, and I've seen them in a people. And I've seen them in me. And I've seen them in my people. This is our world. And it feels like the writer of Genesis has been reading our newspapers and our junk mail. And yet there is so much about this story that is left to our imagination. We have to read between the lines in this story. Was Esau really impulsive or was he outright starving? None of us think right when we're hangry, right? Maybe he was just hungry. Or did Jacob do the right thing or the wrong thing in this story? Some people would say Jacob did the right thing. He knew that the birthright was his. He knew that Esau was an unworthy bearer of that birthright. And so he just did what he had to do. And some people would say, no, no, the ends are never worth uh, the means. And he's a trickster, he's conniving, he's a liar, and there's no good in this. To be sure, there are parts of this story left to our interpretation, and there's parts of this story that aren't surprising at all. But I will say there's one part of this story that knocks my boots off. The most surprising part of this story to me is God. Did you notice that in this story, God seems to side with Jacob even from the womb? Has that ever troubled you? I mean, Esau hasn't done anything wrong. He's not even born yet. And Jacob hasn't done anything right. He's not even born yet. But God likes Jacob. But maybe it's not so much that God likes Jacob as it is that God has a preference for younger brothers. Have you ever noticed that as you read the book of Genesis about God? God seems to have a preference for younger brothers. I'm an older brother. I have talked with God ceaselessly about this problem of God's. Why God likes the younger brothers. As you've heard already today, the conventional wisdom of the day in the ancient world was to give deference to older brothers. Sociologists call this primogenitor. It's the idea that the primacy in the family was given to the older sibling. The idea is that in a patriarchal way of looking at things, when the father died, the older son would be running the show. And therefore, the older son would receive the lion's share of the inheritance and the blessing and the birthright. The oldest son was the favored child. And that's the way the world worked. It was the social convention of the day. It was common sense. Everyone knew it. The older son is where people looked for promise and leadership and blessing. The older son. But in Genesis, that is not the way it works. In Genesis, that is never the way God works. God turns that notion on its head. Have you ever noticed that God 
really gave deference not to Ishmael, Abraham's oldest son, but Isaac. And here, it's not Esau that's given preferential treatment. It's Jacob. And then later in the Genesis story, it's not Joseph's many brothers, older brothers. It's, it's Joseph, one of the youngest. Over and over again, the Lord subverts the traditional social convention of the day. Or as one of my favorite scholars says, the God in this text threatens the practitioners of primogeniture. I really just wanted to say that today. I like that phrase. But our God threatens the practitioners of primogeniture, which is a fancy way of saying that for the people who expect the world to work the way it's always worked, this God is going to feel a bit like a trickster. For the people who think that God takes sides with those in power, which is why they're in power, then this God is going to feel very subversive and pulling the rug out from under people. For the folks who are accustomed to their culturally derived rights and privileges, and in particular the people who are the big brothers, this God is going to feel something like a heel grabber. This God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I've heard that from someone I trust before. Our God seems to be a sucker for underdogs, and you would think we would have learned that by now. We see it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Younger brother, younger brother, younger brother, and over and over again, God frustrates the practitioners of primogeniture. When the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, do you remember that? God felt their pain. God stood in solidarity with them and delivered them from the mighty empire. Our God chose their side in that story. God chose the little people. When Saul was king of Israel, the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse. Do you remember that story? Samuel was to look for the next king. And Jesse brings his sons out according to primogenitor, the oldest first. Here's my oldest. And Samuel says, not him. Second oldest, not him. And one by one by one. And finally Samuel says, is that all you've got? And Jesse says, well, there's David. But he's the eighth son. You might remember that in a Hebrew family, seven was the perfect number. Which makes David maybe an accident. He's out back with the sheep. He's the youngest. He's the eighth. Who wants David Samuel says, bring him, and out walks David, and Samuel says, that's him. He's the one. And the one who had no authority in his own living room now had the keys to the kingdom. When the Babylonian and the Assyrian empires ransacked Israel and later Judah and took the people into captivity, God stood with the exiles amongst all the empires of the world, the people who were running the show. God stood with little old Israel right in the middle of them all. And when Jesus was born, he was born in the days of Caesar Augustus, the story tells us. But he was born to a young peasant couple in Bethlehem, a small farming community, and was surrounded by sheep and goats. And speaking of sheep and goats, Jesus ran around with the least of these his whole life. 
the poor and the sick and the sinners and the tax collectors and the children, saying the last are first and the first are last. And on the last day, when God separates the sheep over here and the goats over there, it will be because of what they did or didn't do for the least of these. And then on Jesus' last day, he hung on the cross, and as he did so, the Bible would have us believe that God stood not with the powers of the Roman Empire, nor with the, practici the practitioners of Jewish primogenitor in the religious leaders of the day, but that on that day, God stood in solidarity with the one who was dying a scandalous death on the cross. Any sane person would say that's weakness and the rest of this is strength and power. But where was God? And were we at the cross that day? Would we have seen it? Could we have seen it? Over and over again, I say to you, brothers and sisters, God shows inscrutable mercy to the least of these, to the younger siblings, while leaving the older brothers scratching their heads, or according to the parable of the prodigal son, standing outside the house where the party's happening, saying, I don't know if I want to go in there or not. And until we get that, until we really understand our God standing with the least of these, until we really get that, then we will believe in the cross, but never really believe the cross. In this story, we have an older brother who can't see past his own appetite and a younger brother who seems like a conniver and a, a trickster from the womb. I'm not sure either of them are worthy of emulation. We can see their faces in our mirrors if we have eyes to see. And to the degree that in this story they are not just people, but peoples, then we can see them in our international news as well. There is a commingling in this story of vice and virtue, Comfort in conflict, salvation, and sin. And I'll confess that I spent more than a little of my week this week asking God, what is this story really about and where are you in it? But I must say clearly today that whenever you or I can't see God in stories like this or when we can't discern God in the 6 o'clock news, when we can't get our footing and we're asking God, where are you in this? then we should listen to what this story says to us. Not so much what it says about Jacob or what it says about Esau, but what this story says to us about God. Over the course of the next few weeks, I'm assuming you will hear on multiple occasions that the phrase, the God of Jacob, is the most common reference for God in all of Scripture. That God is called the God of Jacob more than God is called anything else. The God of Jacob. To call God the God of Jacob is to say, amongst many other things, that our God is God of the younger ones. Our God is God of the least of these. Our God is one of the undervalued ones and our God chooses their side over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And brothers and sisters, if we are worshiping the God of Jacob, if we are worshiping the God of Jesus and being shaped in that image, then that's where we will be standing too. As James says, religion that is pure and undefiled is this, 
taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. That's the only religion that matters, is the religion that calls us to the least of these because that's the only religion that has anything of Jesus in it. And if we aren't doing that, then my guess is that we're really worshiping our bellies and throwing Jesus on top or pulling at other people's heels and using Jesus' name to do so. Our God is the most exalted God and is at the same time the God of the least of these. And if we don't get it, we don't get it. And all God's people said, let's pray. Oh Lord, we spend our days looking for you and trying to discern where you are in all of this. And our bellies rumble as we look. And we have this very natural proclivity to grasp for, for whatever heel is in front of us. But teach us for the first time or for the millionth time, teach us for, the, for this time to look for you amongst the younger brothers, to party with the younger brothers, to stand with the least of these, and to see you in the cross. Because that's where you always have been, and that is where you always will be. Give us eyes to see. It's in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit we pray. One God now and forever, the God of Jacob. Amen.